The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen, Amen. Turn in your copy of God's Word now to Mark 7, verse 24. Mark 7, verse 24. We pick up where we left off last week in this journey through the first half of the Gospel of Mark. We've been answering this question along our journey. Who is this man? Who is this man? And as you turn there in your Bibles, consider with me as we begin this concept of borders and boundaries. All of us exist within borders of various levels, don't we? Think of your own home. There are borders to designate the various rooms. You have a master bedroom, kids' rooms, maybe a guest room, a kitchen, living room, etc. And there are sociably acceptable rules, some spoken, others unspoken, some that are written and some that are unwritten about who's allowed in which room and how you interact with the various people who come into your room. This week, this was put on display in just kind of a funny way. Uh, you know, Paul. He was over at my house. We were looking through uh, my house for some office supply things as uh, we were downstairs and looking in the various uh, closets and drawers that we have around our house. You have some of those with like that just random office supplies are in there and we needed some tabs. And so we were looking, he's following me. We're looking all together. We're up in my office and all that. And then I went to go into my master bedroom Uh, because there's like some cabinets in there and I'm just, we're talking and I go in and walk and I'm still just talking to myself and I realize. I'm the only one in here. I'm the one Paul didn't come in. He didn't cross the border. There's an unwritten rule about uh, the master bedroom, isn't there? There's unwritten rules. And so, um, Paul, you would have been welcome to follow me wherever you are in here this morning. But uh, no, there's all kinds of borders and boundaries. There's property lines within your neighborhoods, on our roadways. There's county lines and state lines, national borders, continental borders. But Before you think that uh, this morning is a message on our current immigration crisis, let me actually take your thoughts backwards. Let me take your thoughts back to first century Judaism that also had built borders. See, as the Pharisees and scribes created a system of religion, they built these borders about who could be in, who was in, who was out, and how to treat them. See, they had moved away from Scripture, and then ultimately they'd moved beyond. They had uh, set up borders that were contrary to the plan and purposes of our God. And so in our passage today, Jesus resets those borders. Jesus will reset the borders back to where he established long ago, long ago. And so join me now in Mark 7. We'll pick up our story, like I said, in verse 24, and we'll take it to the end of the chapter. Follow along in your copy as I read God's word for us. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, 
for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is God's word for God's people. Along the way in the book of Mark, Jesus has been teaching us who is eligible for salvation. Back in chapter two, uh, we saw as how one commentator described that those that are eligible for salvation are the seemingly unlikely, the socially undesirable, and the spiritually unhealthy. In chapter five, Jesus, he extended his mercy to the rich elite, to Jairus and his daughter, and to a ritually unclean woman. And now in our passage today, Jesus opens the borders to offer grace to a Gentile woman and her child and a disabled man. All of this culminating to teach us this one truth. No one, no one is beyond the reach of grace. No one is beyond the reach of grace. There are no ethnic nor physical borders that the grace of God cannot get to. And so let's look closer now at these two interactions that Mark records for us to make this point. See, these aren't just obscure passages. He is making a point. First, his global reach. His global reach. No one is beyond the reach of grace. Why? Because it is global. See, Jesus has just come from teaching on the wickedness of the human heart. He's saying that all of us, all of us have a sin problem. All of us, the problem is not outside of us, but it is actually inside. And after teaching this, as we get to verse 24, apparently he needed a retreat. He needed to retreat. And so he heads northwest to the coast of the Mediterranean, beyond the borders of Israel to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is modern day. If you were to look at your map on your phone right now, it's modern day Lebanon than Phoenicia or Syria. It sounds pretty nice, right? He found an Airbnb on the Mediterranean Sea. I mean, who wouldn't want that? A personal retreat. He says he entered a house uh, and did not want anyone to know. Doesn't that sound kind of delightful for some of us? A summer break like that? And yet, yet what does it say in verse 24? Yet he could not be 
hidden. I mean, he's Jesus after all, right? He's pretty popular. Everywhere he goes, somebody recognizes him. And so verse 25, look, it's like he's gone for a retreat. He's at this personal retreat and immediately his peaceful retreat is interrupted by a frantic woman. You see that? Uh, it's interrupted by a frantic woman. Picture uh, like a, uh, an emergency room scene here where a mom has rushed in with her unresponsive child. She had the, the look of panic in her eyes. She can't even hardly uh, explain what has happened because she is so afraid, so fearful of what has happened and has just burst into the emergency room, similar to what is happening to Jesus here. He's in his house. He's trying to be uh, in a place of quiet. And now this mom has interrupted his peace and quiet. All Mark tells us here is that the girl has an unclean spirit. We know not exactly what uh, the, the demon is physically doing to her. She's likely heard, though, the reports of Jesus' healing ability, and, and like so many before, now what is the woman? She is at his feet. Look, she is at his feet, and she is begging Jesus frantically to cast this demon out. We're just left to imagine what it is, just how the demon is afflicting this little girl, but based on the woman's, on the mom's imploring of the Christ, it's bad likely horrific. We don't really know. We're left to imagine. But what Mark does make clear, look at verse 26. What Mark does make clear is just exactly who this woman is. She's a Gentile. It means a non-Jewish person. Literally a, a, a Greek, someone who is not a Jew. We're given, she's a Syrophoenician from that era, or from that area, rather. Matthew, in his account, Matthew 15, he tells us that she's a Canaanite. Canaanites are the ancient enemies of Israel. This is, you know, it's interesting. Jesus finds himself in another socially, uh, a socially unacceptable situation, doesn't he? The situation is, is awkward. Now he's here, this woman, he's on this retreat, and the situation's awkward, and now the conversation turns awkward too. Or does it? Look there at how he responds. She's burst in, and when, look at what Jesus says to her in verse 27. Let the children be fed first, for is it not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? Let me ask this question. Was Jesus being rude to her? Thumb gauge, everybody here, we're gonna thumb gauge. Was Jesus being rude to the woman here? If you think yes, thumbs up. If you think no, thumbs down. There's no equivocating here. We're gonna be decisive today. So come on, participate. Was Jesus being rude or was he not? Any takers on yes, no, I think we got all thumbs? What's that? He's gonna call Jesus rude, that's right. (laughs) That's right. It's like, if I do that, is lightning gonna like strike? Uh, Put it over your neighbor or something? No. I mean, it was, Jesus was clearly tired. Should we just give him the benefit of the doubt? Is he, should we allow him an excuse? Is he, is he being rude? Well, your answer is right. No, he's not. He's not. What's actually happening here is a, is a pretty profound, teachable moment. To rightly kind of understand what's happening in this, uh, you know, in our minds we think, like, he's calling her a dog. Well, uh, yes. Yes, he is, but this isn't, don't, don't think in your minds like the kind of like the flea-bitten, mangy street mongrels, okay? Think of like your household pet, a little dog, your, your beloved, you know, Covey, that's our, our dog. 
Think of your dog, your little dog. And he's taking advantage of this teachable moment. He is testing the genuineness, the persistence of this woman's faith. Is she just here for the show? Is she just here for the miracle? Or does she truly believe? He's testing. He's testing her. And he's also teaching a a much far-reaching lesson that salvation is available to all people. Salvation has come through the Jewish people, but it is to all people, Jew and Gentile. Yes, Jesus has come. He has come to to feed uh, the children, but also to give all food to even the crumbs to any who are welcome in this home. And so she, she takes the bait, right? She plays right along. She has a genuine faith. Look at in verse 28. She takes it and just, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. The dog may not be welcome at the table, but they are still fed. Beloved, don't miss the point here. Don't miss the profound, far-reaching impact of what Jesus is teaching here in this passage. What did he just do in the previous paragraph? If you were here last week, he had just declared all food clean. He had just said, now all food is available to eat, and now he is declaring all people are available to be saved. That this good news, his message, his saving ministry is open to all. However, this has always been the case. This has always been the case, though, though now it is the emphasis in God's redemptive plan, now it is shifted here, um, it is still hard for them to grasp. It's hard, it's, 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 it's almost like difficult for us to understand, much like the food laws, this idea of Jewish priority, of the children being fed first, but there's food enough for the whole house, even the dogs. It would be unthinkable to take the food that you were going to feed your children, and say, you can starve, let me feed the dog first, and then kids can have the crumbs. No, there is a priority. There is an order to which the uh, Lord has come and this redemptive plan has unfolded throughout human history. Much like the food laws, the early church would have difficulty with this uh, idea as well, with this shift as well. Uh, Many thought that Gentiles, non-Jewish people, had to first convert to Judaism before converting to Christ which obviously is not the case. Paul would have to teach on this. Our our New Testament is full of examples. Galatians 4 and 5, Ephesians 2, and excuse me, Romans 15 teach specifically on this idea that we come to Christ and this has always been the plan for all people to be saved through Christ. I want you to do me a favor. Let's go over to Romans 15 for a second because I want you to see just how profound this is for we who in this room are not from Jewish heritage. Turn over to Romans 15. If you're in your Bible, just go right uh, several pages. Uh, There's a few books in there, Luke and John and then Acts and then you'll find Romans Romans in chapter 15, verse eight. And I want, I want to just show you here because Paul is teaching them and I want your mind to even be blown by the unfolding plan of God throughout all of scripture. That the fact that the borders of salvation are open to all has always been God's plan. 
If you're there, Romans 15, verse eight, look at this. This is Paul teaching this church and our church here at Redemption. He says, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Now what he's saying there is that Christ has come as, and this is a euphemism for the Jews. He's saying he's come as a servant. He's come to prove God true. That the promises that God made all the way back in Genesis 3 and to Abraham and to, and to, uh, um, to, to David and the, uh, and the Jewish people all throughout, that a Messiah would come through them, that the rescuer would come through them. This has been proved true. But look at verse 9. Circle that and if you're uh, into Mark in your Bible. And not only did he come to prove himself true and faithful to his promises, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That's us, y'all. And Christ came that we might glorify God for his mercy, the very things that we just sang about. Look what God has done. See the church that he is building, that great song that we just got done singing. And then what he does is he goes then to, uh, you see kind of your, your Bible probably has him like in block or kind of offset there. He goes to quote four Old Testament passages as witnesses that this has always been the plan of God. One from the law, two from the Psalms, and one from the prophets. As if to say the whole of scriptures, those were those three, the, the law, the prophets, and the wisdom literature, the writings, those were like the three main genres of the Old Testament. And now uh, what Paul is doing is saying, this has always been the case, and look at the witnesses of the Old Testament. He says there, he's quoting Psalm 18. He says, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, here's Deuteronomy 32:43. rejoice, O Gentiles. Gentiles with his people. And again, here's Psalm 117.1, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, this is Isaiah 11.10, the root of Jesse will come. Who's the root of Jesse? Jesus. Jesse is David's father. Here's Jesus. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. See, this has always been the case. And these four witnesses bear witness to us that it is available. The gospel is available to all. And so when Jesus goes into this region here, back in Mark 7, when he goes to this region and he encounters this woman, it is a deliberate ministry move. It's not just out on like a nice stroll on vacation. This is a deliberate ministry move to show the global reach of grace, to declare that he is Lord of all. And that's what's so profound back in our passage here in in Mark 7 and verse 28, that the woman calls him, what does she call him? Lord. She calls him Lord. This is the only time in the whole gospel of Mark that somebody calls Jesus by his right title. He will refer to himself as like the Lord of the Sabbath. But here, the only time that, and that by a Gentile woman, that someone calls him Lord, Master. And because of her faith that is professed as Lord, nobody but by the Spirit of God can call Christ Lord. Because of her faith in Christ, her daughter is delivered. At a distance, 
See that? He doesn't even have to go. He says, for this statement, for your faith, the demon has left, and she goes home, and she finds the kid lying in bed, the demon gone. Beloved, these aren't just some obscure verses in our Bible. Like I said, they are teaching us a far-reaching lesson based on the sinfulness of our hearts. None of us deserve a seat at the table. We, we are like the little dogs who don't belong. But Jesus isn't deterred by those details. He isn't deterred by those details. We can take Christ at his word much like the woman and come to Christ and pray in faith. We can say something kind of like Pastor Kent Hughes. He wrote this uh, sweet little prayer, a paraphrase of it. And we can pray, Lord, if you say I'm a little dog, I am. But that means I have a master. And that master is you. It means that I am a humble part of this household and that I can claim the crumbs. And the crumbs are better than anything that I can muster up. We can come to Christ no matter who you are, no matter the condition of your family, you are not beyond the reach of God's grace. You come humbly before the Lord, taking him at his word, you will be received. And we who've been received, who now stand in that grace, here is what we must do. We must not withhold the gospel of grace from anyone. We must not withhold the gospel of grace from anyone, even that person. Yeah, that person. The person that comes to mind, the person that is beyond your borders of personal comfort. We must not withhold the gospel of grace from anyone, and we must get the gospel of grace to everyone. We must get the gospel of grace to everyone. This is why we as a church are so passionate about church planting, about replicating, God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, Bible-proclaiming, disciple-making churches all across the globe. This is why we are so uh, bent on doing things like the VCCR that raise money, that raise awareness, that get us involved in uh, this effort to see churches planted where many disciples will be made, matured, and multiplied. This is why as a church, this is how we as a church, uh, as leadership, make directional decisions. This is as we are thinking about ministries. Well, how does this advance the Great Commission? How do the things that we as a church are, get involved with, how does this advance the gospel and get the gospel out to as many people as we can, to those that have ears to hear? And this is why we are so urgent about equipping you to live out your faith. This is why we are so urgent about equipping you to serve in our community. This is why we are, are, are so uh, committed to gathering God's people, of equipping God's people with the truth of God's word to, and, and walking in the spirit of God to go and live out your faith. So I would gather on a Sunday morning to, uh, to vertically, yes, glorify God and horizontally to equip you that you will be reoriented to the holiness and goodness and glory of God, that as we come here and then you are sent back out, we gather to worship and then we scatter to get the gospel out. And this is what we do, we scatter you, so that way you go. And then we have those things throughout the week, like our small groups, to help you continue going, to keep this th these things on your mind. This is why we do a podcast, so you can listen to it throughout the week and be encouraged in your faith. This is why we're encouraging you to have your own personal disciplines of, in the word and in prayer. 
as you are living out your faith among the people that God has put right in front of you. That's why we equip you with things like those bookmarks that are on your, uh, on your seats. Those aren't necessarily just to mark you know, our place in the book of Mark. It's kind of a play on words there. But to give those out. Say, come, hear what God is doing. Come worship the Lord with me. Give those to your friends. Let those be a, 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 a tool to help you tell others about the goodness of the grace of God. And so this is the who. But even as we think of this, this next scene here, which is actually interesting, found only in Mark's gospel. His interaction with this deaf and mute man is only found in this gospel. But it teaches us uh, how, how we reach out. It teaches us how we reach out. First, no one is beyond the grace of God. We see the global reach, but we also now, join me in verse 31, we see his gracious touch. We see his gracious touch. No one is beyond the grace of God, not dogs, nor the disabled. Those that we maybe hesitate to be near. And what's interesting about this little, this, this little walk that Jesus is on, this deliberate ministry move, is as we get to verse 31, we kind of see his, his, his route that he's taken. He takes from the region of Tyre, and he goes through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, and then he ends up on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee in this region called the Decapolis. It's about a 120-mile journey all the way around. It'd be like starting here in New Braunfels, walking up to San Marcos, and then, you know, kind of making your journey up to uh, Kyle and then making a loop back down to Seguin. That'd be quite a walk, wouldn't it? Anybody want to join me? Maybe on our bikes and train for the VCCR and we can maybe do a loop like that. I'm getting a lot of blank stares right now. No? Nobody wants to? Okay. Speaking of which, if you're going to uh, this little commercial break, if you're planning to ride, I think July 1st is the last day to sign up so they can get all the supplies. So if you're planning to ride, register today. Not right now on your phone, but that's a long walk. Some uh, scholars, they estimate that that ministry move among the Gentiles beyond the borders of Israel was about an eight-month ministry journey he's on. And we, we, we get to this, and we're, you know, as we read through Mark, we're getting used to scenes like this, aren't we? Somebody has a problem, somebody is sick, somebody is demon-possessed, and they are desperate, and they now come begging Jesus to help. How many times throughout the Gospel of Mark have we seen a scene exactly like this? Many times, just a different person, different problem, but the same place they are coming. But don't miss, this, this is true of all of us, isn't it? This is our testimony. All of us got problems. And if you think you don't, well, you do. Read the previous portion here. She's got a heart that is wicked. And we come because Christ is our only source of help. We come because Christ is our only source of help. It's all of us find ourselves in this similar spot, but the question is, well, what's Jesus gonna do this time? What's he going to do this time? And look what it, it says. He, they bring this man. He's deaf. He has a speech impediment. They're begging in verse 33. He takes him aside from the crowd privately. Privately. And he speaks this uh, really kind of a, a form of sign language. He's not giving this man a wet willy. I know some of you were thinking of that, putting his fingers in his ears and all that. He's not, not doing that. He's just saying, hey, I see. I see that you are deaf. I see that you can't speak. 
And then, underline this, look at it, look at it, look at it, verse 34. It says, in Jesus looking up to heaven, he sighs. See the gracious, tender touch of the Lord? He looks up to heaven as if to say, here's where the source of your healing is gonna come from. And, and there's an interest that Mark includes that he sighed. It's interesting that he's the only one that includes this. And then even that little detail, the words are important, beloved, in our Bibles. The details are important. He sighs. It's obviously a very memorable sigh. Compassionate sigh. It's tender. And then he speaks in Aramaic. It's kind of a tongue twister word. Ephephatha, which literally means to be opened. And there, beloved, is immediate improvement. Immediate improvement, so much so that he speaks plainly, right from the get-go. Some of you have maybe been around those that have a, a, a speech impediment and that through like long, long periods of time, through therapy, they begin to speak and their, their, their language, their speaking becomes not slow and stammered but very clear and crisp. And now in this case, Jesus, it is immediate healing that his tongue was released and he spoke plainly, plainly. And like in normal scenes here, Jesus he tells him, hey, keep quiet, keep quiet. Don't, I know we've had this great miracle. I know that this has happened, but he charges them, urges them, literally commands them, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. Why? Because he doesn't want the crowds just to keep flocking, seeking a circus among him. He, he needs to be able to move among and do ministry without just the crowds slowing him down after the crucifixion events. Then go tell as many as you want. But here's that messianic secret. You tell them, keep quiet. But we know how well that everybody obeys as soon as he commands them, don't we? The more he tells them, what does it say? The more zealous they proclaimed it. Yeah, we hear you, Jesus, but we're going to proclaim it even louder. The ironic part is that the man who was healed, he he's now can hear. He just has heard Jesus, but he still suffers from selective hearing. <laughs> That's a problem that uh, maybe takes another miracle to heal in any of us. But everyone is super abundantly amazed. You see that? Verse 37, they are astonished beyond measure because he has done all things well. Everything that Jesus does is purposeful and perfect that he makes even the deaf to hear and the mute speak. Is this just an obscure passage here? Or is there something even beyond why Mark is including this about Christ? I think there is. There's some grammatical connections here. There's some things as a Jewish person would be reading this that would take uh, their thoughts back to Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, I want you to turn there with me. Isaiah is a big book, 66 chapters in your Old Testament. Isaiah was a great prophet of God warning the people of God to repent and come to Christ and prophesying of great things, of hopeful things that would one day come. And as you read this passage here, there are some indicators that are taking them back that Mark is making a very loud statement that the Messiah is here. 
that the Lord of all is here. Are you at Isaiah 35? Listen to this description of the future millennial kingdom. He says, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. Doesn't that just give you a picture of what is once barren and dead and dry now is bright and alive with all kinds of living things. Verse two, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. There's indicators, where, where is Jesus just at? In our passage back in Mark, he was just in what is modern day Lebanon area of Tyre and Sidon, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. We cannot see God, but we can see his glory, the effect of his presence, and what happens when God is present. Lives are transformed. Things like what he now begins to describe happen when God is present. Verse three, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Beloved, when God is present, transformation happens. When God is present, when his glory is on display, transformation happens. And in Mark, in this scene, we are getting a glimpse of that glorious era because the king is among them. The Lord of all is among them. This man who is once deaf and mute can now hear and sing the praises of his God. In a spiritual sense here, all of us are deaf and mute. All of us are like this man. We had no ears to hear nor a tongue to worship, but God, until Christ showed up in our life. This is our testimony, beloved, that before Christ, we had no ears to hear, no eyes to see, no tongue to confess that Jesus is Lord until we encountered Christ. This is our testimony, not that I, uh, I, I, um, I, I cleaned myself up, I got my act together, that I, got, uh, I figured all things out. No, our testimony is one that I was once deaf, I was once mute, and then I encountered Christ, and he transformed my life. That is our testimony, beloved. That is what we have been saved by. And now we who've experienced the gracious touch of Christ, we do our extend that same grace to all. We do extend that same grace no matter who we are with, no matter where we are. The global reach of Christ is a gracious touch through God's people. Praying, sighing tenderly as we encounter those who are apart from Christ. See, beloved, is there anyone beyond the reach of grace? It's not. It's not. 
beloved, the Lord of all has come. There are no borders for him, for every square inch of this planet is under his dominion. Every soul under his sovereignty. Somebody great has come. The Lord of all has come. In the same way that a Jewish reader would be reading this passage and their mind would be taken back to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, as we just kind of scroll back and look at these two scenes, as we look at these verses together, a Jewish reader would also be uh, thinking back to Elijah would be thinking back to Elijah when his ministry went beyond the borders of Israel as well. You can read it for yourself this afternoon in 1 Kings 17 when the prophet Elijah goes and delivers the widow's son from death. And where was he? Zarephath, that is Sidon. And Elijah, after this boy dies, stretches himself three times over the boy so that he is raised to life. In the same way, Jesus has now come and he has taken this, he has delivered this woman's daughter from a demon with his word at a distance. At a distance. See, beloved, somebody greater than Elijah is here. Earlier in, this in, in the previous chapter, we saw somebody greater than Moses was here. Who was there? I am. Now somebody greater than Elijah has come, the Lord, the Lord of all. The Messiah is here. In just these two chapters. No wonder we get to verse 37 and they are astonished beyond measure. They are super abundantly in awe. We too should be in awe of the work of God, his redemptive plan. If you have ears to hear, then let loose your tongue to sing. As our mind is blown by the goodness of God's redemptive plan to save the likes of you and I. And worship we're gonna do. What else could we do but read a passage like this and see the glory of God, of see the borders of his salvation opened to all, all who would come to him with a humble and contrite heart, all who would come to him repentant, believing in Christ for our salvation. We're gonna worship him. And so as we do, as we do that, I'm gonna invite our worship team up, but I want us to just take a moment and spend some time praying before the Lord, praying much like verse 37 teaches us to do.